The Folklore Podcast remains free to listen to thanks to our Patreon supporters. Without them, the show would not continue. To join them from as little as a dollar a month and get access to Folklore audiobook part works and other additional content, please visit www.patreon.com slash the folklore podcast. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. In his late 30s, my guest on today's episode of the Folklore Podcast, Edward Parnell, was trapped in a family tragedy. These are not events on which we dwell hugely, although they will come out during the course of the following interview. Edward sought comfort from those books on his bookshelves which he had read and enjoyed while growing up. Stories about ghosts, hauntings, and other such folklore and folk horror which the landscape around the UK is rich in. Edward's book, Ghostland, was published last year by HarperCollins. It's a beautiful and haunting read. It is, at the same time, an exploration of what haunts the author, what haunts us all, and what haunts the landscape around us. It is full of tragedy at times, but also full of hope. Edward travels the length and breadth of the country, visiting the locations which informed so many classics of literature and cinema. Books by M.R. James and Algernon Blackwood, children's fantasy from Susan Cooper or Alan Garner, and films such as the archetypal Wicker Man. Ghostland is a unique book, and I was delighted to have the chance to ask Edward about the stories behind it and his love of folklore and literature. We begin with an extract from the book itself. Beyond the football pitch at Burrow Head, the land slides towards the sea. The cliffs at this point are more stunted, and at my feet I find what I've been searching for, the final visible remnant of the film's production. Two tree trunks protrude above a rough base of weathered concrete that bubbles over the grass like cooled lava. Almost illegible is the date, 1972, drawn in with a stick at the time the concrete was poured. These sorry-looking stubs were once the supports of the secondary wicker man statue that was built here, using woven hurdles like those you can buy in any garden centre for close-up cutaways and the film's fortuitously captured end sequence where the figure's head drops off to reveal the flaming, setting sun behind. The primary structure, 36 feet high, was constructed further back on higher ground. I later think I have located the flattened area on which it was situated, though cannot be entirely sure I'm in the exact spot. The mess before me now is not much of a monument. The two wooden stumps previously rose to around four feet in height, 
before, in 2006, souvenir hunters chainsawed them away as illicit keepsakes. But these rotten remains do at least provide a tangible memento of the long-ago production. Driving back, I pass through Wigtown, designated in 1998 as Scotland's official national book town, home to an annual literary festival and a variety of second-hand bookshops strung along its greystoned high street. At the edge of the town lies its wide bay. A couple of white-faced barnacle geese are feeding out on the saltings, a tiny fraction of the entire 35,000-strong population that breeds in the Arctic archipelago of Svalbard and winters around the Solway Firth. The 12th-century Topographica Hibernica, written by the Welsh cleric Giraldus Cambrensis, maintains that these geese, which he had observed on a visit to Ireland, grew out of some kind of seashell, hence their name. It's a belief that widely persisted until the 17th century, and even later in some parts of County Kerry, though there it was likely a knowing way of continuing to eat meat during Lent by taking advantage of the bird's supposed maritime origins. A boardwalk leads across the Merse, the grass and marshland of the bay. The tide's out, but I can see that at high water it would inundate the surrounding vegetation. In times past, the river Bladnock scored a deep channel through the marsh. It was into this mud, in May 1685, that two local women, 63-year-old Margaret McLaughlin and 18-year-old Margaret Wilson, painted two centuries later as a beautiful pre-Raphaelite redhead by John Everett Millay, were tied to stakes and left to drown. Their crime was that they were so-called Covenanters, a movement engaged in a nearly fifty-year struggle to maintain Presbyterianism as Scotland's sole form of religion. The consequences for those caught up in the Galloway protests had a brutal conclusion. You know that events will not end well in a period, which finally concluded in 1688, labelled the Killing Time. A granite stake by the narrow dyke of the channel roughly marks the spot where the two women, the Wigtown martyrs, were executed. An event that's every bit the equal of the pointless cruelty carried out in The Wicker Man or Robin Redbreast in order to appease a god of the harvest, or enacted in Witchfinder General by Vincent Price's archly misogynistic hammer of witches, Matthew Hopkins. Set against the acts we inflict upon each other, or the things that cause us harm over which we have no control, the horrors of fiction and film feel inconsequential. Hello, Ed, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Um, before we start, I will just ask you, as I do with a lot of authors who come onto the podcast to talk about um, their writing and, and how it intersects with what we're interested in, if you could just tell everybody a little bit about your background, what you're happy to chat about, and um, how your interest in folklore in the way that you use it within your book comes together. Okay. Yes, well, um, my name's Edward Parnell. I've written two books now. My most recent book, which came out in uh, last autumn, that's October 2019, is called Ghostland in Search for Haunted Country. And it's um, it's a narrative non-fiction book in which I 
travelled around various places of Britain that had a, a resonance with other writers and filmmakers whose work um, kind of intersects with the weird and the eerie. Um, there's quite a lot of folklore in there as well. Um, folklore's always been something I've been interested in. There's quite a lot of Norfolk folklore in my other books, which is a novel I wrote five years ago called The Listeners, which is set in deepest, darkest Norfolk at the start of the Second World War. Um, so, yeah, folklore's always been something I've been interested in, even much like my interest in Ghosts and the Supernatural, which was really around from, well, from, from a very young age, from sort of age four or five, as the book describes. But equally, folklore was um, a big thing. Certainly, I remember on when we used to go on summer holidays. So I grew up in the Fens in Lincolnshire, which is flat and quite dull. In, <laughs> or at least it seemed that way in comparison to the places we would go on holiday. So I remember my favourite place was your neck of the woods in Dartmoor. And I loved all of the, the stories there of the devil sort of walking across Whittacombe Church at night and, and striking down the, the doors with lightning, um, Jay's grave, all those kind of things. So, yeah, I've always had an interest in folklore. And obviously I try and I certainly try to bring it into both of my books to date in some form or other. Yeah, certainly this area of the of the country, Dartmoor, is very rich on folklore. And I will return briefly to that point um, later on and ask you about it. But um, okay. as I say, Ghostland is the book that we really want to talk about today. Um, normally, when I record an interview, I will chat to the other person before we start. We often come up with a kind of set of questions to help to drive the interview in a particular direction. Yeah. Um, now, that's not the case with this one, and I haven't, and I purposely haven't, prepared any kind of questioning at all. And my reasoning for that is because of the nature of this book. Now, um, Philip Hoare, uh, yeah. Samuel Johnson prize-winning author, uh, says on the back cover of, of Ghostland that this is, quote, a uniquely strange and wonderful work of literature end quote and i would agree with that i think this is a unique book in the way that it's put together yeah uh, it's a travelogue but it's not a travelogue uh it's a work of folklore analysis but it's not a work of folklore analysis uh it's a literary critique of of many authors or a media critique of of many tv programs in fact only yeah. it's not that either it's kind of an amalgam of all of those things um, yeah, how with did nature writing thrown in as well? I with think. an awful <laughs> lot of nature writing, um, and certainly if you're a bird watcher, you would also love this book. <laughs> explain, explain to everybody how this book came about. Okay, so um, I was casting around, not writing another novel. I, I had a few ideas, and I was various things had happened. I think which should held me off writing the book, of which one of them, a big a big part of that was what happened to my brother, which I talk about quite a lot in the book. Mm. Which, so I, I won't go into that at this point. But anyway, I was, I was struggling to write a new novel and I was trying to kind of hone these ideas. Um, I, had, I had kind of thought for a book in which the Victorian-born ghost story writer M.R. James, who's 
probably my favourite writer of ghost stories. Um, I, fan- I fancied featuring him as a character in a, in a novel that I was starting to think about. So for inspiration, I went to the place where he spent his childhood, where his father was the the vicar, um, Great Livermere in Suffolk, which is a, a strange little village, itself kind of full of folklore, one suspects, and just just an, an odd place, I would say. Um, I went there to, to sort of get some inspiration. And then when I got home, I I broke the habit of a lifetime. And I, I'm not very good at writing pieces on my website. I don't get around to doing it very often. But I, I came home and wrote something and put quite a lot of photos. And it actually got, um, a few weeks after, it got spotted by an editor at, Half Collins, who um, emailed me and asked whether I'd ever thought about writing a non-fiction book about this kind of subject matter, matter about M.R. James and other other kind of writers of that era, era or slightly after, people like Algernon Blackwood. And of course, I I hadn't really thought of that up to that point, but with you know, with a sniff of interest of, of an editor from a, a big publisher, I, I went down and, and met Tom, my, who is now my editor. And we, we got on really well over a shared love of folk horror films and, and talked a lot about, we really kind of ended up just talking about old 70s horror films, things like Psychomania and, um, as, as well as these writers. And I then went away thinking, well, would I want to write a book about this, a non-fiction book? And if I were to, how would I go about doing it? And I think that's when when sort of faced with that and I went to, to try and work out the best way to do it, it kind of dawned on me my kind of childhood interest in in ghosts and ghost stories and then how how that kind of tied in with my more recent family situation. Um, and the, the thing sort of came together and that was really where, where the, the book was born from. Does that make does that make any kind of sense? Yes, it, it absolutely does. Now, d- did you visit locations because they had a meaning for you prior to writing this book, or did you choose locations based on the authors and the the folklore and the landscape aspects that you wanted to explore, or was it a bit of an amalgam? It was a bit of an amalgam. When I was, it was quite an exhaustive list because there's. This book initially, in its first draft, was even longer than it is now. I mean, it's still it's a it's a four hundred page book, although it's it's very generously set out with nice big margins and things. So it's not quite as daunting as it sounds. But it was a third as long again in the first draft. So actually, there was a chapter on Dartmoor that that got lost in the edit, for instance. But no, I I kind of I picked places. Generally, there was some kind of connection to, I guess, my own life or somewhere where I'd perhaps been on a on a family holiday when I was a kid. So lots of the book, it's about memory and trying to kind of think back to my own kind of family story, which is itself a little bit haunted, I think. Um, so one of my kind of connections with my now gone parents, one of the few things really, uh, were these old boxes of Kodak slides I had in my loft of various kind of family trips in the the late 70s and early 80s and 
again, when planning the book, it turned out that lots of those trips did seem to coincide with with stories or there were places that chimed with writers or films that I'd also kind of, I thought were, had something to, that there was worth talking about. So, you know, with M.R. James, for instance, there's the Suffolk Coast where I'd gone on lots of um, trip, family holidays as a teenager. Um, the tip of Cornwall I'd been to with my brother on several occasions, bird watching, and actually visited quite a lot of the kind of folklore, folkloric places there, like the um, some of the Standing Stones and um, Menantol, places like that. So, yeah, there was lots of the places had a family connection as well as kind of being in some way linked to some of the writers or the films or TV programs I wanted to write about. Some were places I'd, I'd not been to before, but the, there was obviously a link with the, with the writer I wanted to talk about. So, you know, when some of the places in South Wales, that wasn't some in, in Gwent, that was, wasn't somewhere I'd been to before, but I wanted to talk of and explore, um, the work of Arthur Macken. So, you know, I obviously it was it was kind of imperative to go there, basically. Now there are a couple of terms that that come up when we talk about this book that I'd like to get your opinion on what you think they mean, because okay. these terms I find are quite elusive in a lot of ways. Um, I can get what you're going to ask me. Uh, yeah, okay, let's let's see. Right. So the first the first term that I want you to pin down for me and. Um, I asked this question of Anna Mazzola when I interviewed her for the last episode of the podcast because she was working with some of the, the same things. And it is an okay. elusive term. Is is What do you define as folk horror? Mm, interesting. Um, well, I suppose I think that I suspect that the term gets bandied around a little bit too freely now. Um I think I've certainly seen online where, where on you know, I'm, I'm in kind of various folk horror groups and things, which are which are all great. But I've certainly seen that there seems to me to be a tendency for any film that's got anything slightly bucolic in gets out. Oh, that's that's folk horror, and I, I mean, I guess it's it's whatever you want it to be to a certain extent because it's a it's a pretty new term and it's kind of quite a loose term. But yeah, I, I would think of those that kind of unholy trinity of films that also get bandied around the Wicker Man, the Blood on Satan's Claw, and Witchfinder the General. I think in some ways I can kind of I can see the the links with those. Certainly there's the links of the period that they're from, that sort of late sixties, early seventies. They all share a, a rural setting. Um actually they're kind of other than the Blood on Satan's Claw, two of them, two of the most Famous films in there aren't particularly supernatural, are they? They're that which I always find quite interesting. Mm, yes, um, yeah, that's very true. Um, but I think you know, there's lots of yeah. The, that the film I mentioned earlier, Psychomania, that sort of has a, a folk horror vibe. There's the weird little standing stones that the um, the zombie biker gang gang visit, and so I suppose it's. Mm, I guess it's films that. Yeah, there is a there's a rural setting there. There's kind of the past plays a part, um, old traditions, old ways. It is it is really hard, I think, to 
I think it's one of those things that you, you get a kind of sense of it. I mean, there'll even be kind of, remember there was an episode of Endeavour, the Inspector Moore spin-off, which had a, I, I was watching that and thinking this has a real folk horror vibe. And they were, you know, I'm sure the, the directors were kind of, were playing on that in it. Mm. But it, it is hard to, it's hard to precisely define, I think. I, I kind of find it, to me, I think it's a lot of that kind of the era of when the films were first made. So maybe I'm, I'm already like harking back to a golden age of folk horror. So in some ways, I think it's, it, there's that kind of 70s, late 60s sensibility as well around some of them that, that kind of would, would, I would also kind of would help me to kind of recognize it as such. But that's of course of, there's, there's newer films like The Witch, the New England mm. set film that clearly also sort of share that. But it is tough because there's, I think, I guess there's, there will be things that have a sort of, folky horror vibe about them but yeah i'm not sure i'm the best person to define it i realize this is a useless answer here (laughs) (laughs) no no no. it's interesting to get people's opinions we we should perhaps have um andy patcherek or jim peters or or anybody from the folk horror revival facebook group um to when this episode inevitably gets posted uh on on my page to put some comments on it and tell us what they think the definition of folk horror is too now anna matsola interestingly and probably not unsurprisingly also quoted that same trilogy of films in her yeah. answer and i think those are you know the, the probably the ones that are often cited uh, but i think part of the difficulty of this definition for me isn't the folk part of it it's the yeah. horror part of it because yeah. what the what these films and not just films literature pictures you know anything you like it what it's what they evoke is not necessarily the horror aspect that comes first. It's this um, kind of subconscious remembering of, of old beliefs and superstitions. It's, it's our place within the landscape and those things, which I think probably come to the fore more. Uh, And a prime example for me recently of something that's not particularly horror but is most definitely folk horror, for want of a better term, was um, Mackenzie Crook's reboot of Wurzel Gummidge over Christmas. Yeah, which yeah, I mean, that, that that had something about it, didn't yeah. it? I think. I mean, they say there was no there was no horror in that. It was a nice children's TV series mm. or, or or double part episode. Yeah. But yeah, there was there was definitely something about the it had something about it. Actually, yeah. it was. I mean, it was, it was very different to the. The version I remember as a kid, of course, with um, John Pertwee, <laughs> yes, yeah, was far more horrific and terrifying with his popping of heads and Eunice Stubbs as Aunt Sally and various things. I think. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the horror comes far more from the old version for me, but the folk, yeah. the folk aspect comes from the newer one, and and I think it is that kind of sub subconscious place within the landscape that, that that evoked in exactly the same way as some of these other things that placed it in that camp for me. Now, the second term that I wanted to ask you to define comes from the back cover, again, of, okay. of your book. It's going um, to be psychogeography, and, it is, it? and I'm going to be floundering yet yeah, again. Because it it's, absolutely um, is psychogeography. Now, what do you understand that term to mean? Let me just let, put this in context, okay? So, um, uh, Kathy Unsworth, an, another author who, who commented on, on your book, defined it as psychogeography at its finest. So, what do you understand that term to mean? 
I'm it's I I think I kind of I suppose my understanding of psychogeography would be that it's um it's that kind of an act of some sort of retrieval I suppose that the writer is undertaking that so that I was visiting these places that had a resonance whether that was a resonance with a story or you know or a film um, because that might have been the place where a, a film was shot or a story was set or or a place like Great Livermere where M.R. James grew up and in some sense I was then trying to connect to to him by visiting the places that his he'd also had been important to him or he'd he'd visited himself or you know when I'm when I went up to the Dumfries and Galloway coast to see some of the locations for the Wicker Man again I suppose I was visiting that hoping that I would be able to find some sort of connection with with the artists with the filmmakers who were working on that film and to sort of connect with it in some way um so i suppose to me that psychogeography is that kind of yeah that act of trying to connect with connect with the kind of spirit of a place um i don't know whether that's the right definition or not i mean i, I was very conscious writing the book that i wasn't i wasn't so you mentioned earlier very kindly about how Philip Hall's quote about how the book's kind of this amalgam. And I think, essentially, I just ended up writing a book that was kind of amusing me. I think in the end, I decided there's no point trying to kind of second guess an audience too much. I mean, obviously, as a writer, you're trying to, you're trying to have in mind, there is a kind of, you hope there might be a readership of sorts. But after a while, you realize you have no idea of knowing who they'll be. And you, you won't be able to please all of them anyway. So essentially, I think as a writer, sometimes all you can do is write a book that amuses amuses you yourself or is the kind of book you'd like to read yourself. So I think that's kind of what I ended up doing. And obviously, as part of that process, I wanted to visit these places because I thought that was the kind of the one tangible way I could um, I could kind of connect with these things other than just sort of talking rather flatly about them. So yeah, that would be my kind of sense of psychogeography. But I, I, I didn't. I don't say that I didn't come to. I didn't come to writing it thinking I'm going to write a, a you know, a psychogeographical work. It, it was a term I was sort of vaguely familiar with, and obviously, within my book, I, I am quite a fan of um, Max Seabold, W. G. Seabold. So I did. I did kind of visit quite a few places in Suffolk that he visited in uh, the Rings of Saturn. Um, so I was in that sense, yes, I, there was kind of links there to another writer whose work's been kind of, well, I guess it's kind of archetypally a work of psychogeography, some might say. But yeah, I wasn't, it wasn't something that I was kind of desperately trying, thinking I'm writing a, a psychogeographic book here, really. And I've kind of shied away a bit from the term, actually. So. Yeah, but I think it, it must have just kind of naturally taken oh, on. Yeah. It must have just naturally taken on that that kind of aspect, I think, because it certainly in in those aspects of the book that that are not the the family story or or the kind of nature side, um, it you know it really does come across that there is there is this um, kind of very 
in-depth look at, at superstition within the landscape and tradition and and the kinds of things that these writers that you're talking about were working with as well. Um, it's, it's a book that perhaps when, if you looked at a description of it on the page, you might think, well, that that's sounds like a kind of quite a niche book in some respects have you been surprised by its popularity since it came out yes i think i have um and i think my editor was also kind of i think he he definitely thought this would be a kind of a niche book that people who like you know victorian ghost story writers or or folk horror films or all kind of works of kind of english eerie that you know they they might find their way to it but you know it has i think I think I was kind of conscious when I was writing it that the thing that became kind of more the driving force for me was the, the kind of memoir aspect, the autobiographical aspects of my kind of family story. And I think that I, I think that, I guess, I suppose, so um, you know, that, that sort of loss, so I lost my parents at, uh, when I was 17 and 18 um, and my brother a few years ago. So it's kind of, I guess, it's an act of trying to to go back and explore my memories of them and try and and try and I suppose reconnect with them as well. So that actually, that kind of reconnection is sort of a theme that works on lots of levels through it. But I think that family story and that sort of you know having that kind of sense of loss that's kind of quite a universal thing that lots of people have experienced. So I think mm. actually that I've been really surprised i've had quite a lot of really nice emails from people who've also um perhaps experienced loss sort of recently who had, who'd read my book and had taken had actually found some sort of comfort in it which i was i was really pleasantly surprised by and that i was really touched that they um you know got in touch with with me about it but um i think that possibly that side of things possibly kind of moves it out of the kind of more niche things but then i suppose there's there's also lots of writers that I talk about who aren't who aren't niche figures. There's people like Conan Doyle and Kipling. Um, you know, lots of writers did used to write ghost stories or works that were when when the short story was a more popular form. You know, Dickens. There, there's lots of kind of huge writers of that kind of Victorian era and you know and the early part of the 20th century where you know everybody to a certain extent would would write the odd ghost story. So. I suppose there's, there's there's lots of more familiar figures there to to lovers of literature in general who don't necessarily, you know, haven't perhaps heard of Algernon Blackwood or Robert Aikman before. Yeah, there is a real mix in there, isn't there? And I think I I don't want to dwell on the um, family memoir aspect of of the book too much, but I think what I would say is that it, it's based around a story that is you know by its very nature a very tragic story um and i think could very easily have have made for a very tragic read and of course there is tragedy and there is pathos in the book but the book doesn't become a different beast for that uh it actually is all part of this reconnection process isn't it so you're you're reconnecting yeah. with your past but at the same time you're reconnecting with everybody's past with a shared past through what you're looking at in the landscape and through these older stories and older traditions and it really just uh paint paints a, a picture of the whole thing together doesn't it 
Yeah, and I suppose there's another layer in that actually a lot of it also by by nature is me kind of harking back to this kind of childhood love of all this kind of weird stuff, this haunted generation, I suppose, the term that the 40 and times of coined. So, you know, I was born in 1973, so my kind of formative years were, I guess, in the, well, I just about remember some stuff from the kind of 70s, but it was kind of growing up then in the 80s when there was still lots of kind of weird stuff on the on the telly and stuff that you sort of think was aimed at children that we wouldn't necessarily, perhaps it would, but you kind of think, yeah, we, we were sort of watching lots of odd stuff. We were kind of terrified, or certainly I was, for a spell of kind of nuclear war and reading when the wind blows and things. So there's also that that kind of other layer of sort of thinking back to all of that that time as well, I think. Mm. So let, let, let's move on and talk a little bit about, about that aspect then. So st- starting with those kind of childhood years, and we were from a very similar time. Uh, so I was born in 1970, so, you know, we're only three years apart. So we're, we're definitely sharing the same kind of upbringing as, as far as um, literature and TV and all those sorts of things are concerned. Um, what resonates with you now um, from the 1970s, 1980s growing up uh, as being really fine examples of this kind of folklore, folk horror genre? I think that the I have a real um, morbid love of, um, which I talk about a little bit in the book, of all those kind of 70s public information films which mm-hmm. which got recycled kind of ad infinitum so something like the donald pleasant voiced um the spirit of dark and lonely water which was this mm. minute and a half or so long film to warn of the dangers of playing near water and accompanied um which is absolutely terrifying um there's this sort of grim reaper figure who's sort of laughingly watching various kind of little urchins who are playing at the edges of reservoirs or on their own in mill ponds and things. Usually they're kind of poking a stick towards the football that they've lost. And all that was, that stuff was shown. I do remember it being shown on TV. And I do remember, I don't think I've invented a memory of this because I think sometimes there's a danger that we, we think that we're all exposed to all of this stuff. But I'm pretty certain I do also remember seeing it before, you know, going to see something at the cinema, because there was mm. there was still a cinema in the town where I grew up, which closed down when I was about 11 or something. But, you know, it might have been something that was before the Empire Strikes Back. Who knows? But I'm pretty certain I did see it at the cinema, and I certainly saw it at the time. Um, but then other things like all the little Charlie Says cartoons, they're, <laughs> yes. they're, they're really kind of quite terrifying now, of the you know, the various dangers they, they warn of. Yeah, and um, so that that's kind of an abiding memory, I think. And I also, though, I, I remember that we may have watched all of this stuff, but I don't think it had any effect because I remember remember me and a friend sort of messing around conquering near the river, and he fell in the river while chucking a stick and going after something. And he was fine; it wasn't very deep at that point. But you know, we weren't watching these things and kind of heeding the warning from from memory. Okay, we never. I don't remember ever flying a kite near any electricity <laughs> pylons or something, but yeah, you would have. I, I do actually remember. I do think we. I have a memory that we did go into some sort of. Yeah, there was like an electricity substation that had all keep out signs near my house that we would occasionally kind of mess around and climb into. So yeah, we we probably were kind of 
foolish idiots and were lucky not to encounter <laughs> yeah, a, a I th- Donald Plessy. Bigger. I think we were all there. Weren't we? I think I think um, I don't know whether you've read Scarred for Life, but um, Stephen Brotherston, Stephen Brotherston will be uh, will be rubbing his hands at this point. That yeah. We're discussing some of this, I think. Uh, but, uh, I certainly have an overriding memory of Apaches as as my uh, public yeah. information yeah. film that I still remember now. You know, and I live in Devon. I'm surrounded by farmland, and I, I still have a, a memory of large tractor wheels and, and far too yeah. much blood for a, for a children's public information film. Unless I'm misremembering some aspects of it, you know. I mean, the, 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 yeah, they were they were strong I, I pieces. I'm not sure whether we. I, I I watched the patches when I was writing a book, and I did write about that in the first draft, and it didn't quite make the final cut. But I I, I absolutely loved that film. But again, I do remember as a kid playing when I used to visit my my nan's house in Norfolk and playing with like the local kids in the fields with making kind of forts out of enormous hay bales and things and kind of those kind of falling over and people getting stuck under them and things. But, you know, that, that could very, in Apaches, that would have ended very, very badly for us all. <laughs> it would. And I remember doing exactly the same thing with my cousin, uh, you know, in, in a hay barn, all the bales yeah. piled up with tunnels underneath them. And looking back at it now, it scares me rigid that we did that, yeah. you know, but... Uh, I know. Yeah, we were young and indestructible in those days. I, I guess that's the thing. I guess so. Yeah. So as far as far as um as far as fiction and, and those sorts of things go, uh, growing up, who who do you think are particularly um good good examples of of authors working with this intersection of of folklore and the landscape? I'm thinking of people like Susan Cooper as a as a natural yeah, kind well, of one. I, I guess. think. I mean, I, I I love the Susan Cooper books. Um. I'm not sure quite when I first read them. I was I was kind of quite precocious as a reader, I think. So I remember reading kind of Lord of the Rings at um, primary school, and I certainly I read all the kind of Susan Cooper books and and Alan Garner, who I talk about quite a lot in Ghostland. Um, and I love Alan Garner, and I certainly I, I I know I read the kind of the Weirdstone books and I read the Owl Service, and. And I think I read Redshift at the time as well. But reading it again now, I can't possibly see. It must have probably the Owl Service as well, because, you know, I, I read them probably when I was 11 or 12, if not earlier than that. And I'm may, maybe I was 13 or something. But a lot of it must have gone over my head. I think kind of Weirdstone, I would have probably, I would have been okay with that. And, and The Moon of Gomra. But he's kind of, he's, the, the 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 next two books I then read of his were definitely um, more difficult, but I think I still certainly the Owl Service I I had in my kind of mark, that that had stuck with me, and that was a book I wanted to reread when I came to Ghostland, and I and I still you know to me was one of my favourite books to reread, and think it was absolutely wonderful, and I loved visiting the the valley in Snowdonia where he got his inspiration from, and where he actually wrote lots of the books so that was a real highlight for me visiting there so moving on then in, into um the more kind of late uh teenage and then in, into adult um years who do you think uh are, are particularly good examples for you of of authors that are working with this same kind of material i mean we've already spoken about mr james as being a prime example from the kind of the the ghost story front there are many others as well i mean who who are particular ones that stand out for you 
Um, well, I, I do. I, I really like Algernon Blackwood. I mean, I think Algernon Blackwood at his best in something like The Willows is that, that may that may just about that's always up there as one of my favourite kind of work, one of my favourite stories. That you know, one of these kind of eerie, weird stories. I won't. Put, it's not a ghost story. It's more kind of weird fiction. But his his kind of the natural world and how he sort of figures that into his his works is is really quite something. But again, folklore in in lots of his tales as well. Um, he's a lot more prolific than M.R. James, and I think maybe maybe some of his I think you know perhaps he he suffers a little in some of his stories. That there's a because he wrote more. I think there's some of them that are a little bit weaker. But actually, at his best, he's he's a, an amazing um, exponent of all this stuff. E.F. Benson, I think, in at times as well. I mean, Benson's. I, I wrote about one particular story in a Cornish Valley that um, that's, that's very good, and he's obviously he's he's a writer who spent a lot of time in Cornwall as a growing up. Um, his father was the Bishop of Cornwall before he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. So, yeah, that, that kind of part of the world features in a few of his stories. I and mean, I remember one he wrote that's all about kind of, um, I think like a sacred well, can't remember what it's called, outside a, a church on the North Cornish coast. Um, so he's, he's someone whose work also kind of figures in kind of local beliefs and folklore as well. Um, yeah. So what is it about these authors that that makes them gel? What is it that that makes the way that they work with with this um aspect of, of our culture um so successful do you think? MR James, Algernon Blackwood, these sorts of people. What is it that that makes them good at what they do? I always find it really difficult to talk about what Good about how um, how a kind of a, a writer what makes their work good. I, I, to me, it's often it's, it's a kind of sense, and it's really hard to define. And I I particularly find that with short story writers because I I, I read lots of short stories, and as well as kind of eerie ghost stories. I, I you know I have spells when I'll consume kind of Tobias Wolf stories or or, or what, whoever. You know, I, I will read kind of. Alice Munro, I'll kind of read kind of, you know, very good short story writers. And to me, there's this weird alchemy and I can read a story and think, well, I think this is absolutely amazing, but I, I'm, I, I struggle to know quite what it is that makes it so. So to me, it's slightly, it's slightly difficult to kind of pin that down, I think. Um, I mean, I think James, M.R. James captures that kind of sense of the kind of recent past often that he he has this kind of, I suppose it's almost a kind of like a rule that he, he he breaks sometimes, but he likes to kind of set things that are 30 years ago or so, you know, they're just kind of starting to get hazy in the memory, but they're not so ancient that we, we can't kind of, that we can't, we've lost all kind of touch with them. I mean, obviously some of his stories do, there's, there's layers upon layers, and actually there'll be kind of a narrator thinking back to, you know, he's the forefathers of a character he's investigating or something. So he does kind of, that's not a, a fixed rule with him, but there's this kind of sense of the kind of the recent past and, and the, the the just vanished, I think, that he captures amazingly well. And I suppose 
you know, we're reading them now as well with this other, there's this other kind of layer of history within there that, you know, most of his stories he was writing from the early 1890s to, well, he died in, I think, 1936. And I guess he's, he was kind of really writing up to, well, he's writing to his death, I think, but up to roughly about 1930 was when the kind of the, the main stories that he wrote. So you're also, you've got kind of, 90 years as well as his own layer that he's built into the story so they're kind of historical artifacts as well that that makes them very which is why it's it's harder i think for finding kind of contemporary ghost story writers it, it's a, it's a harder thing i think to do actually they're almost one of those things that i think that kind of the passing of time can can really help with actually or, or not I mean, perhaps it kind of can take them away from having any meaning as well but generally i i kind of i, I love all those kind of victorian edwardian ghost story writers i think that i i kind of love the atmosphere of them do you think it's the case that we're, we're back again to this subconscious idea of it's just it forges a connection do you think all of this is just elusive that you know folk horror is elusive psychogeography is elusive this resonance or connection with the landscape that we have is elusive. It, it's just part of us, and and it's causing that to resonate is what makes these things successful. I think it could be. I mean, I think you know, lots of there's certainly. I think you know, I I, I have a kind of nostalgia for this stuff. So I, I was definitely aware that I was having this nostalgia for stuff that I'd. I'd liked as a child. That's lots of what this book's about, and obviously that's also me trying to to kind of go back into my childhood and, and also kind of delve into my own kind of family memories from that time. But actually, I do wonder whether, yeah, are, are we kind of yearning for to an, to a point for we're kind of harking back to our own kind of past within it? And you know, as kids, perhaps we were more we were kind of more out in the land to an extent, I guess, if you, at least if you kind of grew up in the countryside, you know, there I was kind of playing with my mate kind of along the riverbank or mm. messing around on a summer holiday with kind of hay bales and stuff. So, you know, perhaps at that point I wasn't kind of more connected with all that sort of stuff. So actually those kind of um, folk horror kind of tropes also kind of, you know, I guess that they, they're kind of resonating and kind of sending me back perhaps into that kind of childhood time rather than the kind of more, you know, the adult world of sitting in front of a computer monitor or something. I don't know. I think there, there might be something in that as well. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a mix of things, isn't it? Nostalgia is very important to us. Uh, I think this kind of memory of the past, which you talk about a lot in the book, uh, how these things resonate. Yeah, it's it's a real mix of stuff. Now, as you travelled around and visited a lot of these sites, um, I, I, particularly what comes to mind is is the section where which you referred to earlier when when you spoke about the Wicker Man. And it's almost like you get there and you expect there to still be like two giant wicker legs, uh, yeah. you know, just as a memory of what they did. And it's like it's just been preserved there for all time. And there's half a giant wicker figure or whatever. And when you get there, there's like nothing really, you know, maybe a couple yeah. of pat patches where it was obvious that they fixed yeah, the legs a, there. There's, and, a, yeah. there's a patch of concrete with a couple of stumps that actually until a few years ago were 
sort of stood about four or five feet high, I think. But some someone at some point a few years ago came and chainsawed them away in the middle of the night as, I guess, as um, keepsakes, as, you know, some real kind of film buff of uh, mm. um, rather selfishly took them away. But so I knew, I knew that I was going to go and that that would be the one kind of tangible reminder of the film that I would see there at Borough Head, this really wild um, point on the coastline overlooking the Isle of Man in the distance and and various other landmarks in, in the absolute kind of middle of nowhere on the Dumfries and Galloway coast. But um, so I suppose I, I knew that I knew that there wouldn't really be, you know, that would be the one kind of quite sort of, well, not not the kind of, not a glorious reminder of the filmic past. And there's, there's nothing out, you drive through this kind of quite unprepossessing caravan park. Um, it's a very bleak site. Um, you drive through that to get to and park up sort of in that and then walk to this very beautiful but bleak spot where there's a few herring gulls flying around and, and various things, but there isn't very much. Um, so you're not, you, you, but you can kind of, you can kind of try and picture or imagine the, the shots that you remember from the film. But then there's all these kind of layers of an earlier history. You know, there's the, the cave where if you remember from the film at the end, Edward Woodward sort of thinks he's escaped his captors and he runs up through the cave and then emerges onto the, the cliff top. Well, that's St Ninian's Cave, which is this, again, has lots of, I suppose, proper folklore attached to it as this site where the, I think he was the earliest, I probably got this wrong, he's the earliest saint in, in Scotland and had his sort of home there in this cave by all accounts and it's now a bit of a place of pilgrimage so there was all these extra kind of layers of local folklore and history that that is nothing to do with the film because of course the film is set on the fictional summer isle even though it's all filmed on all these disparate locations on the scottish mainland um but yeah there's on on within that mainland there's all these other stories and you know all the kind of history of the covenanters and, and various different things. I, I loved all of that stuff, really. So did you find that everywhere was similar as you went to look at this? Are these kind of um, remnants of the past in this way have now disappeared? Or are, are there places that that actually kind of build on the story of the film that was made there or the book that was written about that location and, and celebrate it more than just letting it linger or, or disappear? I don't think there were any. I don't think there were any places that I went to where where there was any sort of, you know, particularly celebrated or tangible reminder. I mean, with some of the locations for the Wicker Man. So when you go go to, you know, talking to people in, I think the, it's Kakubri, the really lovely little town, which is again quite away from actually from where they from Borough Head, but it you know it's like a an hour's drive or something. They filmed lots of the street scenes of the film there, but you don't walk around and see blue plaques to, you know, Edward Woodward um, <laughs> shot this here. But you can, you can there, you can really recognise like the passageways he ran down and stuff. And if you go, you know, I went to talk to a really nice woman who was in the tourist info and was sort of telling her that I was, you know, looking around for various places where, you know, what some of the locations for the film and. She, she kind of remembered and said, I, you know, she was telling me anecdotes about friends who'd been in it as extras and things. But 
there wasn't actually, if you just turned up and not spoken to anyone, you wouldn't have found anything at that point sort of celebrating it, um, which was quite interesting. And that was, you know, that was the case. There were other places I went where you, know, you kind of, you half expected there there should have been a, you know, in the Welsh coastal town of Bore, where I went and, um, which was where the William Hope Hodgson, an, another Edwardian writer of weird fiction who wrote the, the fantastic The House on the Borderland, um, he, he wrote, or he, we think that he wrote that novel there in Bore, because he, in the foreword to the book, he, he names the house, which I, I was very lucky to be invited into by its owner. But you were sort of there and thinking, well, this, this is, if ever a place deserves a blue plaque, here it is. I think there was a blue plaque for the house that Arthur Mackham was, was born in, in, in South Wales. But that, that was really it. There were everything else you, you have to kind of, I guess you do have to be a sort of, yes, yeah, psychogeographic investigator and mm-hmm. sort of poke around and try and make your own sense of it all, really. I th- I think as well that um, while while you're on the subject of William Hope Hodgson, that, that that's that's a, a writer who deserves far more recognition um, than he has for his work, um, particularly something like the Carnacki stories yeah. are just fantastic and 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 yet really not well known by a lot of people. I think he's actually kind of more well-known in America, and I suppose that's possibly because of his influence on Lovecraft. And certainly, I think, interestingly, that I was, I think I was the kind of third random stranger to turn up at the at the house where he he, he wrote, or we, where we think he wrote House on the Borderland. But interestingly, the previous two visitors who turned up on spec were um, an American and a German couple. So actually, it's it's interesting that yeah, you know, there's there's a kind of yeah, there's clearly there's a there's a kind of a band of us who really celebrate his work here. But I think I think he is kind of more celebrated in America. Um, mm. And it's been fascinating to to have you on and to talk about this book. I I really really enjoyed reading this book, and I know other people who aren't familiar with it also would. If people want to find out more about your writing, read some of the bits that you you've spoken about that you have on the web, uh, and get hold of the copy of the book as well, which I would recommend everybody to do. Where would you like them to visit? Um, well, you can visit my website, which is. Um www.edwardparnell.com um, there's a little bit about the book on there and there's a list of most of the kind of writers who are um, who are covered by it so that that's kind of perhaps a good way to quickly get a an overview of some of the writers so yeah as you've said it's also a book that kind of crosses into lots of different things other than just the kind of cultural criticism aspects um, but it's it's available in it should hopefully be available in kind of most bookshops with a bit of luck, or certainly you can get it from online, well-known online retailers as well, <laughs> if that's um, your preferred method of buying books. Whatever works for you, but get it from an independent bookshop if you possibly can, because that, that's really that, important. That would be lovely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, finally, before I let you go, uh, one further question. What's next for you? Well, I'm in that kind of planning stage at the minute. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about and just sort of starting to develop a, a sort of proposal for a next nonfiction book, another narrative nonfiction book, which 
I think perhaps the the kind of nature wildlife aspects of this book might might kind of come more to the fore in it. But again, I'm sure it will be a book that kind of straddles different genres because I kind of that's a good way of keeping myself interested whilst I'm trying to write it. But I would also like to write another novel, and I think another novel that my first novel is is quite gothic and there's say lots of folklore in it. Um, lots of kind of local superstitions and things it's not a i wouldn't say it's a novel of the supernatural but it certainly it has kind of eerie elements and it's quite a dark novel but i'd like i think i would quite like to write another novel that is a little bit more um spooky so that may also be something that's in the offing but uh, yeah i've now got to do the hard bit of actually sitting down and and forcing myself to write because it's (laughs) i can do any like like lots of writers i i can find numerous ways of distracting myself and not doing it so oh procrastination is a great skill that that all all of us writers have in abundance that's very very true (laughs) yeah however it turns out i shall really look forward to reading it and i know lots of other people will too uh ed thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast thanks very much for having me thank you my thanks to edward for joining me on the podcast to talk about ghostland To find out more about Edward and to link to his online spaces and the book, please visit the Guests page on the Folklore Podcast website. You can also find a review of Ghostland and other folklore titles on the book review section of our site too. Don't forget, you can help to support the podcast by signing up for extra content on our Patreon page. You can also give one-off donations through our online store. It is your support alone which keeps the podcast commercial-free and covers the costs which allows the show to keep being made. Thanks to all of you who do. On the next episode of the Folklore Podcast, I'll be looking at the classic creature of British folklore, the Lampton Worm, and also learning about a new audio drama looking at this creature, which comes from an original treatment by Anthony Schaefer, designed as a sequel to The Wicker Man. In the meantime, to play us out of the episode today, here's a track called The Alchemist by folk duo The Last Inklings. This track comes from their debut EP Alchemy, which is released in the UK on the 24th of April and will be touring throughout the spring and summer festivals. Do try and catch it if you can. The songs on the EP are all inspired by modern myth and folklore and draw on narrative influences ranging from the English chronicles to stoic philosophy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Candlelight fighting back shadows to find the missing piece. An anomaly defined by the shape of the space it should be. Obsession became his constant companion, frustration just two steps behind. Uncertainty roamed in the place at the edge of his mind. Alchemy, it's all in my heart. Eternity, 
my task could be something so simple to turn lesser metals gold. Is the secret in faith or in fire when it comes to a soul? If light is defined by its war with the dark, how long have I been asleep? For how can joy ever be savoured without knowing Alchemy.